You're Chuck. Yep. And, and you're who's Arnie. that lovely lady that was sitting beside you? That was my wife, Mary. Okay. She's been with me for 37 years. It hasn't given up. Very good. And where, where are you living these days? We're living in Rochester, New York. And it was 1995, actually, that we moved down there. So that's, what, 18 years ago. I knew I would get it wrong once I started putting numbers to it. Yeah. And what about your family? Uh, we got two kids. Jason uh, lives in Rochester with us. Uh, we're married to Jen. And uh, we just became grandparents for the second time this last Monday. So we got two granddaughters. Uh, one is Emma, who's about two and a half. And uh, Ruby Joan is about a week old. And uh, our daughter Shannon is down in uh, Dallas, Texas. And she's working as a nurse practitioner. And uh, and part-time, and she's taking classes at Dallas Seminary part-time, too, and just having the time of her life down there. So, Well, thank you. And so I should say, so what took you from here? What moved you down back to the States? Well, we had a, a, a number of things that were working in our lives at that time, but um, one of the main things is God was just stirring up our hearts. We had been here for eight years, and, and we loved it here. We loved the folks here. We had a lot of friends. We, we, we jump at the chance to come back. There's a whole group of us that moved together age-wise through all the key significant age uh, categories, and, uh, and our kids spent a lot of time here. But uh, God really burdened our hearts to move to Rochester. There was a small group of people there that wanted to take the plunge and, and to start a, a new uh, ministry there, something different something out of the ordinary, a kind of an unchurched uh, target group is what we were looking at. And God's, God's really done some good things down there. That's great. So we're looking forward to hearing from you, Chuck. So okay. take it away. Thanks. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would. And uh, I really mean that. We, we just so much co- enjoy coming back, back here. Ouch. This doesn't go up. Actually, I don't even need that. There there you go. Thank you. Um, We appreciate uh, the encouragement in in coming back. It's uh, we feel like we haven't changed at all, but we notice a lot of you have changed. Those of you that are older, now now the women, you all look the same. The guys not, the guys not so much. So takes me a little while to kind of figure out from the facial, you know, construction and everything, you know, advance it. To, to try to fit names with uh, people, but uh, it's good to be here, and thank you so much for your financial support over the year. That's just been a tremendous encouragement. It tells us that we're not forgotten. Um, but we felt in our work down there, it was time for us to move on to make way for others to come up into leadership, and God's really been uh, doing a number since we stepped down from leadership there in, in January, and on the one hand, it's, it's bittersweet. It's, you you, you kind of hope you leave a big hole behind. And, um, and they struggled for a little bit, but they got their feet under them, and they're, they're doing great, and it's like, you know, better than when I was on the leadership. So that, that was really encouraging. Um, what I'd like to talk to you today about is, is, is something that we struggle with. It's, it's hard as Christians to keep our noses clean. Uh, that's a phrase I, used to, I use a lot, you know, when I meet somebody I haven't talked, hey, you've been keeping your nose clean. It's, in other words, you're keeping out of trouble, are you... Are you meeting up to the expectations in your life? And, and we have a lot of expectations placed on us, don't we? Um, you've got, if you're a young person, it's the expectation of your parents. Um, 
for some people that are older, they still have the voice in the back of their minds. You know, when you do something, you know, what, what's, what's dad saying right now in my, in my memory? You know, you can almost hear his voice or, or a mother. Um, it could be expectations from the person you're married to. They have expectations on how you should be as a spouse. It, it may be your, your professor or your teachers at school. They have their expectations. I remember taking a class and one of the assignments I just wasn't interested in. But the expectation was is I had to do the assignment. Fortunately, at that time, I wasn't too concerned about grades, but still, it's, uh, um, the expectation is you've got to turn it in because you don't want to flunk the class. In the church, there's expectations, isn't there? You, you go to do something, and you think, oh, you know, is this acceptable in the Christian group that I'm with? And that can be debilitating. And I think for a lot of people, we go through our Christian lives with this sense of expectation, and we're not quite meeting up to it. And on top of that, we read the Scripture. We come here on a Sunday morning, and and every Sunday we find out something new that we should be doing. You know, and and, and in time, the feeling can be as, I'm just not measuring up. I, I, I just don't make the grade. And I may not be concerned about a grade, but at times I start feeling like, I'm not quite doing enough as a Christian, and maybe I'm not fully accepted by God. You know, when I became a Christian many, many moons ago, uh, I, I came to Christ right out of college. And one of the things that, it, that attracted me to Christ was the opportunity to be freed up from the expectations that were controlling my life. I had the expectations of what I thought my culture, young as I was, I had just graduated from college, and all the way through college, university, it was just, you know, what do other people want of me? How do I fit in? What, you know, how should I behave? How should I dress? And, of course, that was in the day when you expressed your individuality by wearing jeans because that was very countercultural. And so we all wore jeans so we'd be individuals, you know. And, um, and I noticed today, you know, jeans are still a common way of expressing your individuality or a comfort. Um, but watching a lot of movies, I was controlled by the movies and what their per- perspective on life was, and that's how I had to live my life. And, and, and I was controlled by alcohol. I, and when I got out of college, I'm, I knew I was a binge drinker in, in university. When I got out, I knew I couldn't do the binge drinking, so I'd just have one beer a, a night after I'd get home from work, and then it became two, and it was up to three. And I, I knew where that was going. I didn't like it, but I... Couldn't seem to stop, and I was smoking on top of that, you know, cigarettes and, and pipe tobacco. I was just, uh, I didn't have control of my life, and I, I was, all these things had their expectations on me, and their, 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 their greasy hands controlling me. And then I came to Christ, and I was freed. I no longer had to be controlled by the alcohol. I could resist it. As a matter of fact, I kept three beers sitting in my refrigerator, as a testimony for a year, I'm going to let them sit there as a testimony. I don't have to be controlled by that. And after three years, I poured them down the drain, and my roommate didn't believe me. He thought I'd went back to the bottle. And I said, no, I poured it down the drain. And I broke open all my cigarette cartons and, and, and pipe tobacco, and I threw it in the garbage. And my roommate says, well, you could have at least given it to me. <laughs> Why waste the money? And I got hanging around with Christians in a small church in just south part of Buffalo. And, and I, I'm just, I'm flying high. I'm freed from these things. I don't have to be controlled by them anymore. And I don't have to be controlled by the media and what the world says I should be. I am free in Christ. 
And, and I came to this church and they just thought that was wonderful because they hadn't seen anybody saved in a long time. And it was the guy where I worked that was mentoring me and he suggested I come. And, and I, I'm thinking this is great. And then I start getting involved in the young people. They look at me like I'm legalistic. Oh, you know, we can't drink, we can't smoke, we can't go to movies. I'm thinking, I've been freed from being controlled by stuff and they're looking at me like I'm being legalistic. And when I start listening and I find out that the older folks were telling the young people, if you're going to be a good Christian, you won't do these things. And I'm saying, that's not right. You're just trying to put on them laws. And the young people are looking at me like I'm the legalist. And I'm caught between these expectations. The young people trying to say, loosen up. (laughs) And the older folks, they saw some other things in my life, you know, like I still had long hair in those days and I had a beard. And, you know, this is 1972. Yeah, understand the context, okay? And, I mean, if there had been earrings in those days, I would have probably had those too, you know, for for guys, you know, and uh, the whole works. They were looking at me like I was suspect. As a matter of fact, one mother told her, I found this out three or four years later, one mother told her daughter, said, you got to watch out for Chuck. He's not not really sure where he's at spiritually at all. I think, man, I have been freed. And, but then there was this entanglement of legalism. What do we do with that? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. What I have come to see after having been a Christian for now 41, 42 years. That was 1972, so what's that? 42 years. Most of us struggle with legalism. And it's not just those people that are saying, do this, don't do that. I think we all struggle with it. And that's why we all tend to feel we're coming up short. We're, we're on this spiritual uh, spinning wheel like a proverbial mouse spinning, trying to gain approval from God. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sins. Father, help us as we spend these few moments in your word. Help us to understand it so that we might walk free in Christ from all the expectations, not just of the law, but of all the other expectations out there. Father, help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice how he he begins by saying the law is a shadow of the good things to come. When we live our lives by laws, by rules, by regulations, and, and, and judge other people by our set of rules and regulations and expectations, when we have expectations of other people of how they should live their lives, which is a form of a Christian law, and some people take the New Testament teachings and, and, and treat it like it's a Christianized law. It's still law, it's just got a Christian form to it, and it's got New Testament verses behind it, but it's still law because we're using the teachings of scriptures as somehow a merit-based system to get God or maybe other Christians to feel more highly of us, think more highly of us. And he says, the writer of Hebrews says, the law is a shadow of good things to come. Now why settle for a shadow when you have the real thing? It's like, it's like I, I carry a picture of my wife in my wallet and when she's not around, I sometimes show that to people. 
Now, can you imagine if I go home and I get that picture of my wife and I set it up there and she walks in and she says, I, can, can we go out on a date? And I say, well, no, I, I want to spend time with the picture. <laughs> kind of silly, isn't it? You know, it's, it's kind of like a kid who discovers a shadow and he goes his own shadow. And he, he wants to step on the head of his own shadow and he can never do it. It's a fruitless endeavor because every time he puts his foot down on the shadow, it ends up being on the shadow's foot. It's never anywhere else. He's running after a shadow, and so often as Christians, we are running after the shadow of things and not the reality. The reality is, is Christ, Jesus Christ. Um, Hebrews 11.1, 1, the next chapter, just turn over there. What is the substance that the law is the shadow of? He says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, the New King James, I think, has a better translation here. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you see a picture, the reality is faith in Christ is the reality. Everything else is just a shadow. All of our rituals, all of our regulations, all of our, sometimes our disciplines The real spiritual ones talk about the disciplines of the Christian life. And that's good. But sometimes we turn the disciplines into a merit system that, okay, God's going to bless me now. God's going to somehow accept me. I'm going to feel comfortable in God's presence if I can just do this, this, and this. That's old way of thinking. That's old way in in chapter 2. It says, otherwise, would they not cease to be offered? If, If all these efforts worked... To give us an access to God where God says, man, I'm I'm just glad you're here. I accept you. If all those things work, then we'd have to, we'd stop doing them because then we would be perfect. We've arrived. But the problem is we get stuck on those things. Are you old enough to remember the Commodore computer? Okay, some of you that are older, I mean, some of you read about it in your history books. You could play Pac-Man on it. I remember the exciting stuff, Pac-Man. Can you imagine spending a lot of time playing Pac-Man when you got Xbox One, Xbox One or PlayStation 4? Why spend your time on something old? Why use a dial-up telephone that's stuck to the wall with a cord when you can get a, a smartphone that you can carry around in your pocket? Or, or, or some of you, why, why would you carry a single function device on your wrist? I think they call them watches. When you can carry an entire computer in your pocket, and there's coming a day when you'll be able to carry the computer in your eyeglasses. And we're talking about a huge difference here, guys. To, to know Christ is the substance of our faith. We talk about having a personal relationship with Christ, and that's become so euphemistic that it really doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, a personal relationship with Christ is getting to know the substance of what it is we believe in. It's not our faith. It's the object of our faith, the person we believe in. He is real. He is very real. And we cannot gain perfection apart from knowing and living in him. Now, the writer is writing to Christians here, and the, the book of Hebrews is, the whole book is, is focused at the Christians who are, or, or I should say the followers of Christ, 
who are, who are, are following the teachings and following the way they're associating with Christians. And, and, and the whole group of them are being tempted to go back to the old way. Now that you've become a Christian or say you're a confessing Christian, don't go to the ways of thinking that the way to Christ is by all the do's and the don'ts, by you know, being at church every Sunday. Not, by the way, I think it's good to be in church. Okay? Um, and, and don't think of the way to get to Christ is, is by don't ever drink alcohol again, although I think it's, it's probably a, a wise thing to, to try to stay away as much as you can from it because we live in an alcoholic society. Um, don't fall back into the old ways of thinking that that's the measure of a Christian's life. That will never, never gain you perfection and get you ahead in the Christian life. Now, might, there are some things we should avoid because they're just dumb things. I mean, my Christian life isn't changed if I step off a cliff. I may shorten it, but I, I still hit the bottom. But my, my relationship to God doesn't change. Some things are dumb. I don't do them. I want to be smart. There's a group of us that meet uh, on Wednesday mornings for uh, Bible study and fellowship. We call ourselves the Band of Brothers. And, and, and uh, our, our theme verse is, is taken from 1 Corinthians where it says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. We, we got our own interpretation of that. It's all things are lawful, but some things are stupid. <laughs> okay? We don't want to do stupid things. You know, I, I, I avoid smoking, not because there's a law somewhere, but I don't want to damage my body. I'm, I'm over 60 years old now, and I, you know, I'm looking at other people my age that are starting to die and I, you know, from, from things that could be preventable, and I want, to, I want to prolong my life, not because that's on the list. I like fellowshipping with Christians, not because there's a verse that says, thou shalt fellowship but because I enjoy it, it strengthens me and encourages me when I go back out into the world where it's trying to tear me down, when I watch the television and I'm not athletic enough or I'm not, if, I'm, if, I'm, if a person's a woman, you know, you're not good enough looking because you, nobody can compare to what you see on there. You know, you see all this out in the world that's designed to tear you down. Coming together as a group of believers, they accept me, they, they love me the way I am. I want to be there. Don't tell me I have to be there. Some churches I've been in, they, you know, if you're not there, they, at one church we visited one year uh, on a vacation, there was a big, large church, and the pastor got up and says, it's summertime months, and we know some of you are going to be away on vacation. If you are away, just, why don't you, the church you're visiting, ask them to give you a letter just verifying you were in church, and that'll count for your attendance here. <sighs> no, you're going back to the old way. We have been set free in Christ now, our time is running out, but uh, Jesus had a lot of followers that quit following him because he went deeper. They were looking at, you know, getting Jesus to spell things out in black and white. And what they really wanted to do is they're following Christ because they ate. Check it out in John chapter 6. We don't have time to get there, but it says they were followers of Christ. They even said they were disciples of Christ. And Jesus says, okay. I'm not sure you understand what following me is all about. Um, and, and the scripture says they followed, and Jesus knew they followed him because they were getting their bellies filled. A lot of people follow Christ for a lot of reasons. And he started teaching them some difficult things. He says, what this is really all about is you have to be so committed to following me that it's like eating my body and drinking my blood. And they go, oh, whoa. Get back here. 
And they questioned her, you, you're not, you don't mean this literally, do you? And they said, yes, yes. As a matter of fact, if you don't eat my body and you don't drink my blood, you have no part of me. And they said, this is a hard saying. Even, even as close as 12 said, so that's a hard saying. He said, yeah, you bet it is. We're separating out the tire kickers from the real buyers here. We're, we're separating out the, the real followers of Christ from the tagalongs. And there's a lot of tagalong Christians. And then finally, when Jesus wouldn't back off, it says many of his disciples went back from following him. They stopped following him. And there was only 12 left, and he says, well, are you guys going to leave too? This is, this is your opportunity. Everybody else is left. You can do it. You fit right in with the crowd. That's the expectations. No one's going to follow someone that's making those kinds of claims. Now you can do it. And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, we are all in with you. And you know, there was nothing that Jesus said about, you know, you have to start going to synagogue, you have to do this, you have to stop doing that. It was just follow me with loyalty. That's all I'm asking. Just follow me. And whatever else happens, don't stop following me because in following Christ, we have absolute freedom. All we have to do is keep our eyes on Christ. Just keep our eyes on Christ. If we read in more detail in this passage, we'll find out that Christ provided. Look what it says in, um, um, in, in, in verse... Uh, 10, for by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. You see, we obsess with our own inadequacy so easily. Most of us, if we push comes to shove, if we could get behind the layers and the facade of each person's life, you find underneath that we all struggle with a certain amount of insecurity. For some of us, it might be the way we look outwardly. I got over that one a long time ago. I had to accept that I'm just not as good looking as some other guys are and not as muscular and not as athletic. But sometimes the inadequacy goes deeper at at, at a more fundamental level of who I am. Am I really making a difference? Am Am I really, do I have a significant purpose or does anybody notice me? But I see this verse says, even though we obsess with ourselves. And, and, and maybe that, you know, we might have some things that nobody else knows about. We haven't told anybody out. And if anybody knew about them, we'd be pretty embarrassed. Uh, we might lose a ministry or we might lose a relationship or someone might just look at us and say, you struggle with that? I remember one elder once told me we were on ladders. He was about 30 years older than me. He said to me, he said, Chuck, uh, do you ever struggle with your assurance of salvation? I remember looking at him, and I didn't say it. My look must have given away. I said, you struggle with that, and you're an elder? And I came away after that rebuked. He was being dead honest. That was a struggle. Now, I've never had that struggle, but I have had other struggles that I'm not so willing to share very easily unless you're a very close confidant in mine, and even then I'm not sure. You know, so we obsess with some of the things in our lives and we'll go to great lengths to hide them. And even when we come to God, we might try to hide them and we might try to put up this facade as though, and for some of us, the way we hide from God is we just don't go to him very often. Someone feels that the reason why the average person has a hard time with prayer in their lives is because there's unconfessed sin at a a fairly deep level. 
not quite afraid if I completely open up with God, will he accept me? And yet David, doesn't he say in Psalm 51, he says, in verse 6, he says, You, Lord, require truth in the innermost being. We only hurt ourselves when we hide our insecurities from God, when we hide ourselves from God, thinking we're inadequate. How could I go before God? He is holy and just, and his eyes are going to pierce me, and he understands not even what other people's expectations are, but what about God's? I'm failing God. How many times have I had an opportunity to witness, and I didn't? How many times have I had an opportunity to speak up for righteousness, and I didn't? How many times have I had the opportunity, or I should have speak up against injustice, and I kept silent? How, how can I face God? How can I be open with God in my prayers? And so we obsess with our own failures. And what verse 10 tells me is that God did obsess with our failures, but he did it at the cross, and now it's done. It says, once for all... Christ died for us. He offered his body. He did obsess about our insecurities, our sin, our failure. But he did something about it, and he says, it's done. I'm no longer obsessing. How about you stopping? Quit obsessing. Don't worry. His grace will show us stuff that we never realized was in there. And we don't have to be afraid that God's going to say, oh, I didn't see that before. All right, we're going to have to put you on probation here for a little bit. Do you ever have that feeling like you, you, you've done something bad and you've messed up and you say, oh man, I really can't really, really, God's going to have to work on me for a few days or a few weeks before I get back to feeling spiritual enough to pray or to serve him. And this verse, I keep coming back to this one and there's other verses like this in, in um, oh, look at verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. We have been made perfect in Colossians, it says, in him we are complete. You know, there, there's, I've run into this in some places. I call it second best theology. If you really, really mess up in your life, you've, you've totally blown it, well, then you're going to have to settle for God's second best. Life would have been so much better if you hadn't messed up. But now you've got to live with that. And maybe no one else is going to tell you that, but you know, you're carrying that burden around with you that you've blown it. My Bible tells me you've been perfected. Wherever you are is, he starts from that point, he says, this is plan A. You are perfect. You are perfect. I accept you. You don't have to jump through any hoops for any voice in the back of your head from a parent who had higher expectations from you. Or maybe a parent that had low expectations and you're trying to prove them wrong. You don't have to meet up to your spouse's expectation. You don't even have to meet up to this church's expectation. The last thing the elders want you to do is to do something just because they told you to do it. Now, that'd be great. I mean, I love it if people do things because I tell them to do it. That very rarely happens. <laughs> but when people do things because they have interacted with Christ, and they are, they are in step with him because their relationship with him, they are freed from living under the bondage of their own will and their own way. And so this passage tells us, if you want to spend some time in it, that Christ was the perfect sacrifice, he was the perfect priest. And then down in verse 19, I like this. What should we do about this? Do we just sit back and say, oh, isn't that cool? <laughs> verse 19, therefore, this is one of the most significant therefores in Scripture. There's another one in 
Romans chapter 12, and there's a few others, but this is right up there with Romans chapter 12. It's pivotal. Therefore, brethren, I'm reading out the New American Standards, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. Note that first, we have confidence. We can go into his presence, and he's perfectly holy, and he says, welcome. And we might be thinking, I don't know it. You know, I get this vision of Isaiah chapter 6. You know, you walk into the temple of God, and what does Isaiah 6 says? It, it's, it's the robe of his, the train of his robe filled the temple. Everywhere you stand, the imagery is everywhere you stand in the presence of God, you're on holy ground, and you go walking in there with dirty feet, like I'm desecrating God's presence. And God says, come on in, come on in. Have confidence Don't let sin prevent you from coming into God's presence. Don't let insecurity prevent you from coming into God's presence. Don't let somebody else's expectations on what you should be and how you should act as a Christian, don't let them that keep you from going into God's presence. Look in chapter 2 and chapter 4 of Hebrews toward the end of each one. It talks about, um, let us enter the throne room of grace where we will find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. See, grace doesn't demand of us anything except we come and respond. So he says, we have in verse 19 of chapter 10, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, not by our righteousness, not by our Christian uh, appearances, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, notice the two things there, two um, um, causes, and he's going to give us the result of that. Since we have confidence to enter, Christ died on the cross, and since we have confidence to enter because Christ is our high priest, I mean, think about it, there is nothing hindering us to have access to God. And and when we talk, we're, we're using human figures as the writer here is doing, it's it's a way of speaking of coming to God with an open heart and and, and experiencing. We talk about being in his presence. I mean, you know, it's it's like we're here in this auditorium right here, but to be in the presence of God means that I am consciously aware of his presence in my life. And I see where I am physically, where you're sitting in the pew right now, wherever you are, you see it as this is God's turf here. I am sitting in his presence It's a a statement of faith. He says, since these things are true, I can do that not because I'm righteous, not because I made up to the Christian status quo, but because Christ shed his blood for me and he as the priest is interceding to the Father on my behalf saying they are forgiven. He says, since those things are true, there's three things, he says in verse 22. First of all, let's draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying, draw near, that's where the cleansing is. You know, we we muck up during the day, during the week. Go into God's presence with your sin. Lord, here I am, dirty and all. My nose needs cleaning. My feet need washing. Lord, I go to you. I'm not going to go and clean myself up first and then go to you. I'm coming with all my dirt. Here I am. He says, if these things are true, you have been perfected in Christ, 
Don't let sin stop you from his presence. Second thing in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. In other words, he said, don't give up on the future no matter how bad things look, no matter how much of a failure you look, no matter how difficult you think life has been dealt to you. Don't give up on the future. What's coming is better than what is now. My wife's grandfather had this statement. I love it. Grammatically, it doesn't seem to make sense, but he says it's better on before. That was his way of saying whatever's coming in the future, it's better on because it's still before us. Everything else is after us and it's what's coming is better. That's a statement of hope. And as Christians, don't give up your hope. This, your experience, whatever it is now, the temptation to walk away from God in faith and say he's not good or he's not sovereign or he's something else, you know, don't walk away from what you know about God. Keep holding on because what's coming is better. And then lastly, he says in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. Be a catalyst in other people's lives for love and good works. Not good works first, and then love if you get a chance, you know. No, provoke one another to love because if we're free in Christ, then we're free to genuinely love people. I don't have to worry about meeting up to people's expectations. I don't have to worry about meeting up to the the standard that other people set. I don't even have to worry about living up to what the preacher says. I just want to live for Christ. And I want to see what Christ, that's why Paul said, to the, uh, it was said about the Bereans after Paul preached there on his second missionary trip, or his third one, I'm not sure now, but he preached to the Bereans and, and the scripture says they were more noble than the Thessalonians because the Thessalonians believed what Paul said, but the Bereans went to the scripture to see if those things were true. Because they didn't want to follow it just because Paul, because that would just be another form of law. They wanted to follow it because of what God has said. And so the person who's been freed from all the expectations only has one thing to concern themselves. I want to live for Christ. And so I want to hear what he has to say. So the work of a preacher is really not to tell you what the scripture says, but to provoke you, put salt in the oats. I'm hoping you go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and study this, read this for yourself, because we are free in Christ. We don't have to obsess and try to meet other people's expectations We just need to live for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have provided us freedom in Christ. We have been made complete through the blood of Christ. We have been made whole. The scripture uses the word perfect. Lord, you, you love us and you also like us. You want to spend time with us and there's nothing on your side that can hinder that. Nothing can separate us from your love. Neither death nor height, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor things on the earth, above the earth, or under the earth. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So Father, help us to rest in that and to enjoy your acceptance of us so that we might be free of all other expectations. And then we can serve you and serve your people and serve the lost world around us with hearts full of love and fullness of Christ. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.